Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series called Full Life. And this sermon series comes primarily out of John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so we're asking ourselves throughout this series, what are our lives full of? Are they full of the things that Jesus wants to give us, that he came to give us, or are they full of all sorts of other things? And so we're exploring what is this full life that Jesus came to give us, and maybe what are the counterfeits that we settle for that is truly less than full life? As we move into this morning's message, I'm wondering, have you ever looked back on your life and realized you missed an opportunity? Yeah, I'm sure you have. As I was thinking about this, I don't know why this example came to mind, but I was thinking about when I had gone on a mission trip during college. I had gone to Siberia to be a part of a church plant that was happening there. And while I was there, that church went on its first mission trip to Mongolia. And so I tagged along and they hooked up with some local Mongolian pastors and they started traveling around the Mongolian countryside among the nomadic peoples sharing the hope of Jesus Christ. Well, here I am, an American that speaks no Russian, no Buryat, no Mongolian. I'm pretty much worthless. (laughs) It is amazing though how much relationship you can form without the use of common language. And I was a part of this very rich and amazing time. But as I looked back, I realized one of the great opportunities I missed out on was that I probably could have ridden a camel. <laughs> we were with the nomadic peoples, and they, were, they had camels and sheep and all these herds. If I had just asked, I probably could have ridden a camel, and now I look back with deep regret. <laughs> See, there's something within us that understands intuitively that full life means making the most of the opportunities that we have. And so we're going to jump into that this morning. We're going to look at what does it look like to really take advantage of the opportunities that we have before us. And so we're going to look at this through the lens of Matthew chapter 25. And I invite you, if you want, you can follow along on the screen. These are the words of Jesus speaking to his disciples, but also speaking to us this morning. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. 
Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, will you bless us as we seek to hear your word for us? May it come alive within us. And by your spirit, may you lead us into life that is full. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this is a story about what the kingdom of heaven will be like when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom firmly and forever. In other words, this is a story about a picture of the end of history as we know it. And what, we don't know when it will be, but Jesus is telling what it will be like. It will be like a man who has gone on a journey. And before he leaves, he entrusts his incredible wealth to three of his servants. He's entrusting his wealth, his livelihood. It's like giving them power of attorney. They can do whatever it is that they see fit. To one, he gives five bags of gold, to another two bags of gold, and to the other one bag of gold. Each of these bags of gold was probably worth 15 years worth of typical wages. This is a lot of money. And so Jesus is giving this picture through this story that the master's going to be gone for a while, but he's going to come back and he's going to demand an account for his wealth. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away for a while. I'm going to die, rise again, ascend into heaven, but I'm going to come back. And when I do, I'm going to demand an account from you, from each and every one of us. We'll have to stand before Jesus and give an account, specifically an account, for what we have done with what he has given us. And one of the things that this story does is it reminds us that everything that we have has come to us as a gift entrusted to us by God. Everything. And I know this rubs against what is a commonly held value as Americans, this belief that we can be or that we are self-made people. And that we've worked hard and so we've earned what we have. And and that very quickly leads us to start looking around and comparing ourselves to others. And we start seeing those who don't have what we have. And so we start to think, if only they would work hard. If only they would be industrious and productive. If they weren't lazy. If they would only, whatever it is, then they too would have more. But this parable is a truth 
that tells us everything we have, whether a lot or a little, has been given to us, entrusted to us as a gift from God. And not on accident, not by chance, but he's given it to us to be productive, but specifically to be productive according to his abilities. There's that little phrase I think that's so important in the middle of this parable because what it means for us is that we're not expected to have what we don't have. You're not expected to do with something that you don't have anything to do with. And so this is another encouragement to stop looking around at other people in our lives and comparing ourselves that what they have and what we don't have, and if only we had that, then we could do the things that they're doing and be productive. This story reminds us that what you have is good for you and that you are able to use it in ways that are productive. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm really good at thinking about the things that I don't have. <laughs> right? Like, like, for some reason, gratitude and thankfulness are things that need to be taught and practiced and be intentional of doing. But for some reason, as humans, my sense of lack and looking around at what I don't have doesn't have to be taught to me. We come by it very naturally, don't we? So the question, though, for us this morning is, what do you have? Not what you don't have. What have you been given? What has God given to you? What do you have? I mean, you have money. Well, no, no, I don't. I mean, I don't have, I mean, I don't have very much. I mean, look at what they have. See, but we're comparing. It's not about what they have. It's about what you have. Time. Well, I don't have a lot of time. You don't understand the demands on my life. We've all got the same amount of time. What do you have? You have a will to choose. You have relationships and influence. You have a personality. You have a faith. Yeah, but, but not like he does or not like she does. See, part of the comparison game that's so dangerous for us is that it lets me get off the hook. Because when I get to look around and I get to see these other people who have so much more than I do or who can do at least what I perceive as so much more than I can do, then it lets me just say, hey, it's really not up to me. I can't contribute very much. It's really their responsibility. Or it lets me decide what I feel like I have a lot of and only give or use that. Oh, I've got time, but I don't have money. I've got prayers, but I don't have time. I've got faith, but not influence. And Jesus is saying with this story, I've given you everything, everything according to your ability, so you can use all of it to be productive, all of it, not bits and pieces here and there, not what we feel like we have a lot of, but what we feel like we have a little of, just as much as what we feel like we have a lot of. So what do you have that God has entrusted to you to be productive? And productive for what? You know, in this story, it's obvious, right? The master has gone away. He's given his wealth. The obvious goal is to acquire more wealth, put it to work, and make more money. But when Jesus is talking about this story as a picture of the kingdom of heaven, when the end of history comes, what's the goal? What's the master's goal? To make more money? I don't think that's going to matter a whole lot at the end of history. No, we have to start to think about this in terms of, you know, what is the master's business? What is Jesus' business that's been entrusted to us? Because we're left with his wealth to advance his affairs. So what is Jesus' business? 
When you start to walk through the Gospels, there's a lot of different ways that that's characterized and described. I mean, here's just some of them, that he came and seek and save that which is lost. He came to bring back to God all those who have been estranged from him, to reconcile their relationship with God, to proclaim the good news to the poor, as well as the poor in spirit, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the captives, physically captive and spiritually captive, to proclaim sight for the blind, health, healing, and wholeness through him, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to save the world from their sins, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus' business. And with this story, he's saying, it's your business now, too. It's your business. I've given you this life to be a part of my business. It's actually a little bit of what we touched on last week as we talked about the fellowship with the Father and with the Son where His heart becomes our heart. His desires become our desires. His mission becomes our mission. And so this is our mission. To take everything that God has given us, these tools of money, time, influence, relationships, personality, as part of God's great mission to bring healing and salvation to the world. So how are you spending your life? How are you spending your influence, your money, your time? When the time comes at the end of history and you have to give an account to Jesus, will you have wished you changed some of those priorities? If Jesus was coaching you how to change it today, what would that look like? See, as the servants come to give an account... I think we get a glimpse of full life because the rewards that Jesus offers to these faithful servants speak to some of our deepest desires as humans. See, the faithful servants come and the one who has five says, hey, I gained five more. The one who had two, I gained two more. And the remaster rewards them both. And it begins with affirmation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you long to hear that? Don't we long to hear that affirmation from when we are as little as we can remember, a longing to hear our parents' affirmation, teachers' affirmation, bosses' affirmations, peers' affirmation. There's something in our soul that craves to be seen, to be acknowledged, to be affirmed. Well done. And we've gotten this desire, which is, is given, is natural human, and it's become so twisted for some of us that we desire to hear it and long for it so much that we've given our lives over to people-pleasing. It's just making others happy so that maybe they'll just say for a moment that we're good enough, well done. But our soul longs to hear that message at the core of our being, and only God who has made us can speak it into that deep part where people can never speak. And in addition to affirmation, the reward for work well done is more work. Did you see it? Like, you've been faithful with a few things. Now I'm going to put you in charge of a whole lot. And for some who love being in charge, it's like, yeah, that's right. I should be in charge of a lot. Others, it's like, whoa, wait a second. I worked my tail off to get you five more bags of gold, and now you're going to give me all ten back and send me back to work? Yep. Congratulations. That's your reward, faithful servant. 
So you're saying I should have messed it up so that I didn't have to do as much? No, not that. Right, but here, there's a gift in this. See, our approach to work has become so twisted. It's part of the reality of sin's curse throughout the world that we now work and we have to toil. And it's hard. It's why we call it work. But we also have this twisted perspective on work and we've used it. We've approached work as a means by which we give glory and acclaim to ourselves, by which we bolster our identity, by where we affirm ourselves, where we ensure provision for ourselves and for others, and we've put it all on our back as this burden that we have to carry. But the kind of work that Jesus is giving us is free from that because it's not about me. The work that Jesus gives you is not about you proving your worth or about you providing for yourself or about building yourself up. It's about him. It's about trusting that he's going to provide all that you need. It's about trusting that he is the one who can tell your soul, well done. It's about trusting that what he puts in front of you is worth tending to, to use, to point back to him. See, our work and really every moment of our lives is this work, is an opportunity to be in the business that Jesus is in, to help others see the God of love, of mercy and grace, and to see what Jesus has done for them. And that work continues, and it continues, and it continues even after the end of history, where in heaven, did you know that in heaven, there's gonna be work? And you're like, heaven's not as good as I thought it was. (laughs) Thought it was this perpetual vacation where I get to put my feet up. No, in, in heaven there's work because you're created in the image of a creative God. And it, he has works of art all around us, you yourself included. And as we continue into eternity, we get to continue to live out that creative impulse. To create and generate things that will bring glory and honor to him, that will be a benefit and delight to others around us. And it won't be toilsome and burdensome, and it won't define whether we're good enough. It will be joy simply to do it. And in the process, man, work, that kind of work gives us a meaning and a purpose that we can't have any other way. This is the gift in full life, that you have purpose. I don't know if you've ever been in a season of your life where you have felt like your life didn't have meaning or purpose. But it is a dark, lonely, hard place to be. It is a despairing place to be. But this story tells us that our lives have greater meaning and purpose than making ourselves happy in any given circumstance. If life is hard right now and it doesn't feel like it's going the way you want it to and you're in a dark place, there's still meaning and purpose for you to share in the work that Jesus has given, to share in that work of reminding yourself maybe first, but then the world around you that God loves you still and loves them through Jesus Christ. And and so we have this affirmation, we have this meaning and purpose. We also then hear the last word of the reward from the master, come and share your master's happiness. Man, there's the amazing gift. We spend so much of our lives trying to achieve our own happiness, but this is to be received as a gift to share in the happiness of God, the one who is love, the one who is the fount and source of all joy, of all pleasure, of all happiness, to share in that happiness, a happiness that we can't even begin to imagine, and yet we settle for pleasure that pales in comparison. 
And the reward is the same for both servants, the the one that earned five and the one that earned two. And so here's the beauty. It's not about comparing what you've accomplished or what you have achieved. Full life is simply about being faithful with what you've been given. Simply being faithful as a part of that work. Now, the last servant comes. He has a very different response, doesn't he? He says, I knew you were a hard man harvesting where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. He went out and hid that talent, dug a hole in the ground, and he returned to the master what had been given. Why does this servant respond so differently than the first two? Why is this his reaction? I think, I think at the, the core of it, he's misunderstood the master's heart. He hasn't known the master's heart, really. Because if he did, he would actually perhaps be in awe that the master has affirmed him by even entrusting anything to him in the first place. He's saying, no, I believe in you. Here, take this. According to your abilities, I believe that you can be productive. You can do this. I'm entrusting my, my wealth to you. And God, in the same way, has entrusted you a life with every part of it. Because he has made you and knows and believes that you can be productive. I think he's also misunderstood the heart in a way that's pretty common for us today. I, I love far side cartoons and comics. I don't know if you do, but they're kind of sick and twisted. Maybe that's why I like them a little bit. But there's this one far side where it's God sitting at his computer. And on the screen is this guy walking down the sidewalk. And hanging over his head, suspended by a rope, is a piano. And on God's keyboard is a button with his finger lingering right over the top of it that says smite. (laughs) Implying that God is simply sitting there watching, deciding if he's going to crush this man with a piano or not. And, and we can laugh at this, and I do laugh at it, but I think this is, this is a view of God that many hold. That we see God as a hard and angry judge who is disappointed with us constantly. And so we hide. Maybe if you're with us online, you haven't darkened the doors of a church because of this feeling that God is going to strike you down, that you are unworthy and you should not be in the presence of God. Maybe we're hiding even in this room, hiding from being more fully and completely a part of the mission that God's given us. Maybe we're hiding from giving more. Maybe we're hiding from serving more. Maybe we're hiding from talking about Jesus with people who don't know him. Maybe we're really just hiding from God because we're so afraid of being a failure, of disappointing God. See, but the first two servants aren't consumed by a fear of failure and disappointing their master. It seems actually that they have all along had the vision of the reward of sharing in their master's happiness. They were faithful and motivated because they wanted to honor. They wanted to bring the master pleasure and happiness. Their happiness was tied up with his. But the third servant isn't concerned so much about the master's happiness. He's afraid of the master's hardness. He's not concerned with the master's happiness, but more concerned with his own happiness and his own self-preservation. And man, is that not a supreme value in our world today? That our happiness is the most important thing. 
So there, there's some estimates that I was seeing that said we, we receive up to 5,000 advertising images inputs a day. 5,000. Just wrap your head around that for a second. And at the heart of the advertising industry is a philosophy, a philosophy of trying to convince you that your life will not be full until you buy this, until you go on that vacation, until you experience this. Then, if once you have it, you'll have full life. And if they can't convince you that what they're selling will lead you to full life, they will at least try to convince you that your life will be miserable without it. They will settle for your misery if they can't have your happiness. And, and this has become so prevalent and prominent that the advertising has gotten more and more tailored to each and every individual's wants, desires, and needs. It's what big data is all about so that we have I everything. And what's the I and I everything mean? Who's the I about? Whose happiness is preeminent in the I? It's all about me. It's my happiness. And this is the heart of consumerism, this unseen, powerful force flowing through all of American life. There is not one of us that is immune from it. We are deceiving ourselves if we think we are. Tina Dare is the director of Faith Work and Rest Initiative for the Surge Network. And I was reading an article she wrote this week called The Ten Commandments of the God of Consumerism. There's a provocative title. And in this, she says, she says, none of us is a conscious convert to this religion of consumerism. We are discipled into it from childhood. It offers a story that attempts to rival the biblical story. In the consumer story, creation exists for our amusement and satisfaction. The perennial problem isn't sin, but lack. We don't have enough. Enough money, enough devices, enough experiences, enough entertainment. This cultural God has invited all to come and make sacrifices, promising in exchange material prosperity, comfort, and security. And this salvation story has deeply shaped business in our world today. This force of consumerism, offering an explanation for what makes for a full life that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's telling us creation is simply for our exploitation and enjoyment rather than our stewardship, rather than to care for and to pass to the next generations better than we found it. A belief that we lack at a very fundamental level that we always want more. How much money is enough? More. Study after study has found that every income bracket has answered that question more. And so this God of consumerism, of lack, of exploitation, of our happiness being the most important thing in the world is everywhere. And this God of consumerism is promising us to fulfill. And this wayward servant wants to be happy on his own, wants to not be held, held to account for how he has lived his life, but wants to be left alone, happy on his own terms. And in the end of the story, that's exactly what happens. He's given exactly what he wants. He's cast out of his master's presence, left on his own. But he... 
like all of us who have bought into the God of consumerism, will find that not happiness awaits us there, but weeping and gnashing of teeth. Feeling always a lack, feeling always never enough, feeling always the crushing weight of comparisons that never satisfy. But this isn't the heart of the master. His longing and desire for us is not to cast us out of his presence, but bring us more fully into his presence, into relationship with us, to affirm us, to give us more meaning, more purpose, more responsibility in the work of bringing healing and salvation to the world and ultimately to share in his happiness. That's his heart so much that he sent his son, Jesus. Jesus, who was also taken outside of town to the place of execution, to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, to hanging on a cross. And on that cross, the darkness literally consuming him, the darkness of being cast out of the presence of the Father who, forsake, who forsook him in that moment, unlike any other time. Sorrows and horrors beyond our imagination, all so that we could know the love of the Father for us. That's the master's heart for you. The gospel says that the one you will have to give an account to is also the one who gave his life up for you and has also given you everything that you have and trusted to you as a gift that you can use it to be productive in the work of sharing the master's heart of love and grace with the world. And so how? How are you spending your life? Don't waste an opportunity. Don't waste a moment to spend it on behalf of the master who loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that affirms your presence in our lives, that you have gifted us according to our abilities, that you long for us to share in your happiness, to affirm us, Lord, may we not settle for the God of consumerism that lies to us, but may we, may we see, even as we come to this communion table, your heart on display, your love, the loving sacrifice of Jesus to whom we will give an account and yet who has also taken our account on himself. Lord, may we taste and experience your love in Jesus' name. Amen.